0: Hello, everybody, and welcome back to New Books and Psychoanalysis, a podcast channel of the New Books Network. My name is Philip Lance, and I'm your host today, interviewing Dr. Cordelia schmidt hillerau about her novel, *Memories' Eyes, published by IP Books in 2020. By way of introducing the book, I'll just say that the front cover calls it, quote, a New York Oedipus novel. Unquote, which I understand to mean that it takes place mostly in New York City and it's structured by the myth of Oedipus. Cordelia Schmidt Hellerau, PhD, is a training and supervising analyst of the Boston Psychoanalytic Society and Institute and the Swiss Psychoanalytic Society. She has published numerous papers and three books on metapsychology, clinical issues, and applied psychoanalysis. Her 2018 publication of Driven to Survive was a finalist of the American Board and Academy of Psychoanalysis Book Prize. Her first novel, I think I'm pronouncing this right, Rousseau's Traum, I think it's a German title, was published in 2019. Since 2017, she is the chair of the IPA and Culture Committee. She works in private practice in Chestnut Hill, Massachusetts. And so welcome to the program, Cordelia.
1: Thank you, Philip, and thank you for having me for this interview and for taking an interest in my novel, Memories Eyes.
0: You're welcome, and I'm. I'm this has got me into the first novel. I'm actually usually I'm uh, reviewing or, or interviewing people about, you know, theoretical or clinical books, but I think this one's going to give our listeners who love psychoanalysis um, a really interesting taste of some theoretical and clinical issues but in a novel form so it's a treat for me and why don't we um why don't you just tell us what's the story of the the birth of this book
1: well uh i am a psychoanalyst by profession uh i always love to read and uh and write um But when I came uh, to the United States in 2000 uh, and started here uh, to work uh, clinically and in my institute, the Boston Psychoanalytic Society and Institute, I was confronted with the idea that the Oedipus uh, is outdated. Uh, It's an old concept that is of not much use anymore. And this idea of the waning Oedipus struck me as, uh, as uh, rather strange because I think the Oedipus is uh, something that we experience uh, throughout our lives and of course in particular when we grow up and it is uh, a great concept, a very complex and essential con- uh, concept and so I thought of uh, telling uh, a bit uh, or creating situations of everyday life that are full of Oedipal situations, configurations of triangulation and uh, uh, I, uh, I envy and uh, rivalry, and, uh, but also longings, confusion, all these things that come up with the Oedipus complex in the child's mind. And linger throughout life, and that's uh, what I wanted to show uh, in a contemporary story. Um yeah,
0: yeah, going to be very useful for a lot of psychodynamic uh, clinicians who might be listening, people interested in psychoanalysis who who don't who know that Oedipal theory was central, huge core to. Sort of classical psychoanalysis, but maybe they don't get exposed to it much um, anymore. For instance, in my training, which was in a sort of British Object Relations Institute, I didn't really—we didn't talk about the Oedipal myth or the Oedipal complex much at all. Um, There was some talk about pre-Oedipal a little bit, but really not even that. So uh, I think, as I was reading through your novel, I got so caught up in the story, I wasn't. Paying too much attention to um, to where the Oedipal myth was showing up, but every now and then I'd go, it would sort of dawn on me, oh, we're in, we're talking about Oedipal things here.
1: Yeah, you know, you are right. It is uh, an experience in the development of psychoanalysis that uh, in a certain time one particular idea or concept is central, and for for a long time. Uh, with Freud, and uh, after the Oedipus complex was the center of psychoanalysis. And then the interest shifted to narcissism, for instance, and uh, to borderline personality disorders, and then to self and self psychology, or now to beyond. And in the wake of these developments, which are good and necessary, and uh, enhance our understanding of the human mind, often it happens that previously developed concepts are thought uh, of not useful anymore, that they are replaced with a new one, rather than added on, so that even a person with self-psychological issues or narcissistic uh, problems uh, does have at some point to struggle with Oedipal issues, and actually in particular, when the analysis progresses from pre-oedipal to oedipal issues, then we see a much more lively uh, mind that has all these uh, strong feelings. And it's actually fun to work with these. Um, that's at least my
0: experience. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah. I've had that experience, I think, with some of my my clients too, the ones who are far enough along to get there. Um, so when I read this novel i didn't know anything about you um except that you are the author of this book and the protagonist i guess we call it of the book is a woman named Anne. and so i kept imagining as i was reading the book oh this this is the this is the author this is uh she's telling about the story of her life in a way so now i whenever i think of you i think of this character in the the novel Anne. But how much of this book is, um, is autobiographical? And, and if there's any selected passages you want to read at this point, I think there might be, this might be a good time to do that too.
1: Yeah, your question is uh, totally understandable. And of course, I think every novel, uh, whatever it tackles, has the author in it in some ways or other. Now, there are more autobiographical novels uh, uh, than this one is. Um, This one is actually uh, very closely related to the three Sophocles Sophocles plays, Oedipus Rex, Oedipus at Colonus, and Antigone. And uh, I have devoted... Chapter or maybe a part in this novel to each of these dramas because they show the whole life of Oedipus from the beginning, basically, till after its end. And normally we hear the Oedipus complex discussed with the male figure, Oedipus. But I wanted to tell the story from the perspective of Antigone. So the main figure in this novel is Anne basically a contemporary Antigone who talks about how she imagines uh, her father came to New York, how uh, her parents lived in New York before she was even born. And then in the second part, which uh, equals Oedipus at Colonus, uh, uh, this part, as you know, is about... Oedipus and Antigone traveling for 20 years uh, uh, before they find uh, Oedipus resting place. This is the part in my novel that they travel through Tuscany. And in the third part, this is totally devoted to uh, Antigone. So um, in, in the in the place. So in that sense, uh, it is the whole novel is told from uh, the point of view of Anne. And I can just perhaps uh, read how she, how the whole novel starts and how she uh, introduces uh, her ideas about her father, if that's okay.
0: Yes, please do.
1: So Antigone says, so this is my story. My father, Edward, or Stark, or just Eddie, as everybody calls him, comes to New York one ordinary afternoon with a small bag in one hand and a street and subway map in the other, comes in by train from Philadelphia, where he had lived with his Aunt Margaret in her fine apartment for as long as he could remember, and gets out, finally, at Grand Central Station. Now, here he is, in the middle of a totally amazing moment, new and free. He looks around. What an energetic crowd of people, he thinks, racing and zipping back and forth between trains and stairways and all the blinking and sparkling showcases in this huge hall of Grand Central Station. Grand Central Station. And everybody's calling and chatting and yelling and laughing and all so useful and earnest and determined, like Eddie himself hasn't felt in a long while, if ever. This is it, he thinks. Instantaneously, he knows. This is my city. This is where I want to be. He has a bit of money in his bank account, his inheritance from Aunt Margaret, not much but enough to comfortably risk a new start and move into a bed and breakfast or a cheap hotel for as long as it will take to find a more decent place to stay, a place where he has his own bed and fridge and can do his own laundry. My father said he loved New York at first sight, and strangely enough, he had this distinct feeling that he belonged here. He wasn't naive. As protected as his small world had been up to this point, he always was a smart observer and somehow knew about the difficulties in settling in a new place. His habit was to scan things carefully and only then decide. So I see him leaning against a big post next to a coffee shop, looking around. What now, he wonders. The total freedom of choice intimidates him in its enormity. Every step he will take from here can easily lead his life in a different direction, and there is no way to foresee the consequences or to make a reasonable decision. On the other hand, this is the adventure of life. Eddie has finally arrived in New York.
0: Okay, so um, I'm really interested by thinking about uh, uh, our father's lives before we were there. Um, it's kind of what this Anne is is imagining. And this grand, I guess one one thing I wondered, the Grand Central Station, is that like the world of, of of daily activity and busyness Uh, is that, what was the name of the city? Was it Thebes where Oedipus ends up and meets, meets Jocasta, his mother?
1: Uh, Yes. uh, One could say so. Um, I mean, I have not too closely related those, but uh, I thought more the grand central station can uh, kind of symbolize uh, the momentous, uh, 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 stages in our lives where we do make a decision and uh, um, in fact, as you say uh, Eddie will meet, make a, f- a fateful decision and uh, meet the figures of all uh, the complicated uh, uh, members of the Oedipus family of Sophocles'
0: place. And you know I asked about the autobiographical nature of this uh, this this novel, and you answered that very well. Although it's sort of, I still find myself wondering, huh? Did Cordelia have a father who came to New York City? But you don't have to answer this, but. Um, just kind of makes I don't know why I'm so curious about you know how much of this really happened.
1: Well, actually, it's funny. My father never was in New York. <laughs> it happened to uh, he never uh, got to travel to New York. I grew up in Germany, and uh, he traveled many parts of the world, but somehow never did, never made it to New York. But New York, you know, I I thought is basically um, the quintessential city of uh, modern American life it's the the locations that I use in this novel, like Central Park or Fifth Avenue and others, uh, they are really in New York. And I know New York a little bit and uh, I love this city. Uh, it's a great city, very exciting and has a lot to offer. So I love to place uh, uh, the novel in New York. Um, but I also think uh, New York is a bit of a, uh, a paradigm of modern life actually my first novel that was published only in German so far Rousseau's Dream also plays in New York and uh, not uh, because uh, the people necessarily have to live there but because I think it is so uh, uh, such a central idea of modern life and modern American life um, that I think it is uh, suitable for a a place for a modern novel.
0: Uh And I know a lot of our listeners are New Yorkers. um, It's kind of the central, the center of psychoanalysis in some ways too. Yeah. Maybe, you know, not internationally even. Um, And I'm so glad I I lived in New York in the late eighties in Chelsea for, for two years. And I'm so glad I lived there because there's no place like it. Um, Yeah. Well, that's, uh, you know, this novel, um, I, my experience reading through it is that it started speeding up. And, and the last, I don't know, third of it really became sort of this exciting roller coaster ride. But can you speak about the pace? And was there some, um, is there a method behind the madness uh, of the ending?
1: Well this is really an interesting observation. I I wasn't aware of this, but it makes total sense to me when you say this because the first part covers many years um I would say about uh, um at least 20 maybe even uh, in the end uh well no 20, uh, certainly more than 20 years. Uh the second part covers five months, and the third part covers five hours. So, in fact, one can see that uh, there is a time component, uh, which I wasn't really aware of or thinking about, but uh, that may uh, speak to what you noticed, the acceleration of pace. All three parts are more or less of the same length, and so we can see that uh, the more uh, detailed uh, I look, uh, time-wise, uh, the faster it seems to draw to the end.
0: <clears throat> yeah, and, and quite, yeah, quite exciting as things build in this story. At the ending of the story um, it felt really right to me, and somehow, I don't want to spoil it, but, but maybe, so I'll let you sort of, do you want to say anything about the ending? and how we can think about that.
1: Um, yeah, uh, I don't want to spoil the ending either, but in more general terms, I can say, what happens when in psychoanalysis, we work through the oedipal issues? Uh, many of our patients think when they come to analysis, uh, okay, I have some problems, and at the end of the analysis, they, I have worked them through and they will be gone. But this is not the case. Uh, What we help our patients to do is to think about them, to become aware of these problems, of these issues, to recognize them when they show up again in particular situations. And so the uh, Oedipus uh, complex uh, finds in some ways, as Freud says, a resolution when the child grows out of it at the age of six or so. Uh, and the resolution um, uh, at best is the idea of the child to, to say, okay, now I'm still a child, but when I'm grown up, I can also have uh, uh, a partner uh, like my mommy or like my daddy has. I can also get married or have children and can do the grown-up things. Until then, I have to grow and learn. And so in that sense, I think uh, the novel tries to show a certain development uh, that the protagonist, Anne, makes, also uh, her father, Eddie, to some extent. And so this development... Uh, makes them aware of what they hadn't known so far. So there is something, uh, an enriched understanding of their lives that comes to both uh, 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 main fa- figures in this novel. Um, I think this awareness uh, does help them to live a better and freer life, uh, not to enact uh, old secret stories, but to uh, reflect upon them and start to live their own lives. Uh, Certainly that is true, I think, a hope for
0: Anne. This um, novel deals with um, the, the myth of Oedipus and also with, of course, psychoanalysis. And I think as the novel goes on, certain Actual psychoanalysts, people who are psychoanalysts, become more even more central to to the story, and then references to the characters characters who are in analysis. And uh, at sometimes in the near the beginning I, middle-ish, I thought, oh, it's, it's, there's kind of some idealization of uh, psychoanalysis going on here. <laughs> That's those illusions are sort of uh, uh, disrupted near the end, where. Uh, there's a very sort of um, not so ideal picture of what sometimes happens um in the world of psychoanalysis so do you want to say anything about about that that issue
1: yeah um, I have actually two answers to your question about the idealization. the one is the style um, I sometimes have uh, uh, used a kind of gushing style, the uh, being all wrapped up in in how wonderful a person is or so, and this um, runs a bit counter to the current contemporary uh, spare uh, or minimalistic style. I did this because I think this is how our fantasies work when we fantasize about something. We idealize uh, the situation that we wish for Um, and in reality of course we know it's not so uh, ideal as we uh, would like to enjoy Uh, but I can say also that I do love psychoanalysis I think it is an endlessly fascinating undertaking and it is empowering and so Uh, What I always liked with psychoanalysis was it follows the lines of Kant's enlightenment when he calls on us to have the courage to own our own mind, to uh, think independently, to reflect and uh, to discover in our own world reasons that we hadn't thought about before. In that sense, I wouldn't call it idealization, but I would say in that sense, I certainly uh, am a fan of psychoanalysis. Uh, I would love to be able to recommend it to everybody who has the capacity to do analytic work. Now, uh, that being said, I am also aware of that psychoanalysis sometimes unleashes quite some powerful emotions and in particular transferences. And so... uh, To handle these uh, uh, transferences and emotions is not that easy. And that's why sometimes, unfortunately, uh, our profession stumbles. And uh, in that sense, uh, it is what you call the darker side in psychoanalysis. Uh, For instance, in a small uh, uh, way, already the non-revolution of of transference at the end of an analysis so that the patient stays in a lifelong idealizing dependency on his or her former analyst. That is a little bit a problem, I think, uh, to when the analyst not, doesn't want to let the patient go and live his own life, even uh, if he hasn't reached what the analyst has thought for him would be possible or desirable. So uh, it's not that easy. Uh, and um, since idealizations uh, uh, tend to look only at the bright side, I thought it is important also to have a look at the not-so-bright side in our field or the dangers uh, that uh, run with the glory.
0: And I want to get back to the dark side in just a moment because that's a really interesting part of the book. But as an aside... I'm so glad you mentioned that what you called the gushing style, which is there here and there. It's not throughout, but because when I was first reading, there were some moments early on when I—I I don't know—there were like exclamation marks and and I started sensing that little bit of gushing style, and I I thought I don't know if I like this. This is this is not the kind of literature I'm used to reading. But nevertheless, so I had that kind of negative judgment in my mind. But I, but nevertheless, I kept. I couldn't put it down. I kept reading. Um, and so now you helped me understand. Uh,
1: yeah. Can I give a, a sample of it so that uh, um, uh, it becomes um, perhaps a bit more clear to the listener what I mean with a gushing style? Uh, is that Would that be okay? Yeah, please. Okay. So um, this is uh, also from the beginning. Eddie comes to New York. He finds... Uh, Uh, a room in a kind of romantically run-down Soho Inn. And now I describe uh, uh, the next day. In the morning, when he gets down to the small breakfast area, there's a woman sitting and reading the art section of the New York Times. Her dark curly hair, still entangled and befuddled from a short and agitated sleep, I imagine, Loosely falls over the slim bones of her shoulders, completely covering her face. Who is she, Eddie wonders. The woman is so involved in the paper that she doesn't even look at Eddie when he sits down at her table. There's only one table in the small dining area, and all hotel guests are supposed to eat there between 7 and 9 a.m. So he looks around, feels slightly allergic to the red and pink roses on the wallpaper, the frayed plush on the chairs, the lace cloth on the credenza. all this an offense to his say, sense of taste. My father has a very fine sense of aesthetics. And so he starts doubting that he will stay here for another night when all of a sudden he notices the woman's sleeve. The sleeve is hanging down from her hand holding the newspaper, which she is slowly lowering, either because her hand is following her eyes as they near the end of the article at the bottom of the column, or because she is so disappointed with what she is reading that all her day's energy is momentarily seeping out of her. Anyway, the sleeve of her brocade-embroidered dressing gown is dipping like a thirsty tongue into her cup of black coffee, greedily sucking it up and licking it off and drowning in brown the features of an idyllic Chinese country life that had just been pleasantly playing and dancing along her soft, silken forearm. Madame, your sleeve, Eddie cautiously says, and it might have sounded like your slave, because the woman moves her newspaper to the side and looks at him with utter surprise. How beautiful she is. Even though, maybe in her forties, she radiates a youthful, even girlish freshness, but also a loving maturity, a thoughtful depth, a sweet manner, and such a harmonious soul that Eddie falls head over heels for her, loses himself in her eyes, these gorgeous eyes. When has he last or ever seen eyes like hers so open to him, so clear and calmly focused, so interested and intelligent. She looks as if she has gone through all kinds of human issues, from energizing to destructive, and enjoyed and survived it all. Eddie is speechless. As soon as he has recovered his wits, he reiterates, your sleeve, sleeve I mean, and points at what he's talking about. Oh, says the woman, now realizing her maladretness, and a shadow of regret glides over her eyes like a rain cloud, which gets Eddie fired up. I actually know how to completely eliminate coffee stains, he has the presence of mind to come up with, I'm something of a magician with regard to coffee stains. The woman smiles, possibly comforted, perhaps amused, and certainly curious. Are you she responds. Yes, Eddie confirms, and has no idea where this will get him, but he is so pleased to see his breakfast partner smile again. I'm Eddie, he introduces himself, advancing his hand towards hers while lifting himself up a bit to produce an elegant bow. Hi, Eddie, I'm Joyce. Joyce responds and hands him her hand, which he delicately takes, barely touching it, only to breathe on it or rather indicate an old-fashioned hand kiss. Nice to meet you, he gallantly says and sits down. This is what our heroes get to live out in our fantasies. And my father was my hero. For many years he was, and maybe he still is. So this is one of those gushing uh, (laughs) paragraphs um, with which I wanted to indicate how we would love things to be so romantic and so wonderful, so complete and all uh, comprehensive uh, in one uh, single moment that we live through. And I know uh, that it may sound kitschy. It is actually supposed to be a little kitschy because that's what our fantasy lives uh, are when we think of it or think of it uh, without... Telling anybody else because we would be ashamed to do so.
0: Yeah. Well, yeah. It, I I guess you're helping me understand how this passage worked for me. Just my impression.
1: How did it, you react?
0: Well, one one little he's the line that says, "Who is she?" Eddie wonders as he's he's see, seeing this woman, um, and then something about her eyes, those those gorgeous eyes when has he last or ever seen eyes like hers and um so suddenly I started thinking of and it, throughout the novel there's places where a mother and a son look into each other's eyes and it made me just associate to my mother's eyes which are blue and mine are blue
1: mm-hmm.
0: and, I, and our family of six me and my mother are the two who have blue eyes and wonderful Yeah, there's so that's sort of stirring up sort of feelings in me.
1: Yeah, there is something special that will always be special for us, even if we mature and live a normal life and don't have these or wouldn't admit to these strong feelings, but they can be revived in psychoanalysis. And if we are
0: uh, honest to ourselves, we still may have them at times. Well let's move on from the gushing style to the dark side <laughs> um, so because, uh, there's um, the, uh, the theme of incest comes up here now. And you might want to say something about that because our listeners who might be familiar with the Oedipus myth might miss what, what incest has to, to do with that with and, and with psychoanalysis and the transference and um And this novel gets into questions of uh, boundary violations uh, in in institutes. Um, So somehow you wove all that together really beautifully in this novel. And that's kind of a generalized way of talking about it. But maybe you can respond to that.
1: Yeah. You know, when I came uh, to Boston in the, uh, I came only to Boston in 2000. And uh, in the first 10 years that I lived here and worked as an analyst, three uh, major cases of uh, alleged sexual boundary violations occurred. And that was deeply disturbing to everybody. Um, It felt like pulling the rug out under one's feet, and uh, the institute struggled uh, to uh, deal with it. Um, And I was thinking uh, maybe there's a relationship between uh, discrediting uh, the Oedipus complex and these uh, uh, boundary violations, because uh, think of it, when our patients uh, start analysis, they develop a transference. And because of this transference, uh, there uh, come up uh, uh, parent-child feelings in the analysis. Now, Freud wrote this important paper, Observations on Transference Love, where he reminds all of us that the, the transference love uh, uh, is nothing to be proud of. Uh, it has nothing to do with our qualities. It is what the child uh, transfers to the analyst, the f- early feelings to hi- him, his or her own parents, and uh, boundary sexual boundary violations are always incestuous because of this transference relationship, and uh, it may remind us of Ferenczi's uh, paper on the confusion of. Uh, of tongue, Uh, I think it is a confusion of transference and real life that happens when uh, these kinds of feelings are enacted. And uh, I thought the third of Sophocles' Sophocles' plays, which is Antigone, it deals with a moral conflict. Antigone deals with a conflict of obeying Uh, the law of her uncle, who is the uh, governor uh, at this point, who is the ruler of the country, or if she is supposed to hold on to uh, and be uh, faithful to her family members. It's the question of uh, leaving the brother unburied in front of Thebes, uh, which is what the uncle had ordered, or burying him, which would uh, be faithful to her family member or to the laws of God, as uh, Sophocles says, but uh, break the law of the worldly ruler. So there are these conflicts uh, uh, to who one feels loyal, how to resolve these uh, moral conflicts when they occur. And so I thought that's uh, a good place to... Um, work through some of what may occur when such boundary violations uh, take place as a result of unresolved Oedipal conflicts and uh, difficulties, I think.
0: Yeah. Well, you you give some really, um, uh, I'm trying to find the word, sort of vivid and uh, intriguing um, stories around those issues um especially as as the the novel comes closer to an end and it strikes me as what you were talking about among the you know the psychotherapies psychoanalysis is the one that that sort of honors transference welcomes it maybe even seeks to foster it and what a sort of it is playing with fire a little bit i guess we could say i'm, I'm trying to remember wasn't there a movie that came out a few years ago about Carl Jung and yeah. Um, Spielrein, and it had the name Dangerous. I can't remember the title of that film. Yeah. But. I,
1: I don't remember it either, but I saw it uh, exactly. That's uh, a, a presentation of the dangers uh, of transference love when yeah. uh, they are uh, basically exploited or abused by the analyst. Yeah. So, not the occur- occurrence of transference love is a problem. That's the patient's right but to uh, abuse it, to uh, make use of it, of this uh, weakness and transference, that's, I think, uh, a grave mistake.
0: Uh-huh. The cover of the book, Memory's Eyes, um, maybe you want to say something about that title, Memory's Eyes, but also what what would you say about the, the cover picture?
1: Well, the cover picture, I thought, uh, could... Um, Uh, Present the development. Um, The first picture uh, shows a father and uh, a daughter who are uh, charmed by each other, a little bit like in love with each other, despite being already adults. Um, And uh, tellingly, um, there's a middle chair between the two that is uh, empty. So that would be the chair where the mother would be supposed to sit but is not there. The second photo shows the same father and daughter but they look a little cheapishly. They have now discovered uh, something in her their history that makes uh, this, uh, let's say, gushing love uh, not possible anymore. So they have understood something about guilt, uh, responsibility, uh, weakness. Um, I mean, children also have to learn about the weakness of their parents. Um, The first idealized parent is slowly emerging also with all the not-so-good sides that he or she has. And taking all of this into account... uh, Uh, is a little bit of a shadow um, that uh, is cast but can also be worked through, uh, I think, in most uh, parent-child relationships when uh, we end up thinking, well, they were not the greatest and this I missed and that uh, was not so right. But all in all, it was... uh, good enough or it was uh, they did what they could Uh, so also a reconciliation with uh, the weaknesses of the parents uh, may occur Um, the novel ends probably a little bit before that by first being confronted with a knowledge that hadn't been there at the beginning and that needs to be digested first let's say in the years after the novel ends. Uh-huh.
0: Can you talk about yourself as a, as a psychoanalyst and a writer? Um, there are, of course, psychoanalysts who write novels. Probably most of them don't. <laughs> but but you've written another novel before this one, but and you've written other things too. Can you speak about that?
1: Yeah, I always loved to write. And uh, actually, one of my early goals was to become a writer, but somehow I didn't... Uh, manage. I wasn't successful and I thought, I'm not gifted. Uh, I can't do this. And I was uh, very happy to write psychoanalytic papers and I dived into uh, psychoanalytic theory for which I also have uh, uh, a soft spot. I am fascinated with Freud's theory of the mind. And so for many years I even dropped reading fiction because I was so involved in theory. But when I had worked all of this through, I came back to reading novels and I thought, oh, I could try just like that. And I tried and I so enjoyed it and was so fascinated with this process of writing fiction when I was sitting down, let's say one morning, not really knowing what I was going to write. And then after four or five hours, there was a piece there, a a tale, a, a story was there that I had no idea before. And that was all of a sudden uh, in my life. That was a very exciting uh, experience. And so now while I still continue to write once in a while a scientific paper, as we call it in psychoanalysis, uh, I also enjoy novel writing. Uh, I'm currently writing on my third novel and I still don't quite know how it will end, but uh, I'm sure If I let it uh, develop itself, uh, it will show me how it needs to end.
0: And I think you should say something about your scientific writing because you've got some recognition there too.
1: Well, what I was most interested in was Freud's drive theory and in particular uh, his uh, second drive theory which uh, introduces a life drive and a death drive making aggression a representative of the death drive. So that psychoanalysis ended up with uh, sexuality and aggression as the two main driving forces in mental life. And that somehow never really uh, convinced me. The connection of a death drive with aggression. And so I started out, first I wanted to write only something about the death drive And then I realized, no, it doesn't work. I have to write about the whole drive theory. And when I wanted to do a bigger essay on drive theory, I realized I need to include structure theory because we cannot think about the drives without thinking about the structures. And I ended up with working through Freud's uh, whole metapsychology from the early beginning uh, of the project, 1895, till the very end, and in this course, I developed a new understanding of uh, the death drive, uh, which included, in my view, the what he had early on called the self-preservative drive and then dropped it. Uh, it's not that he uh, renounced it, but it was basically canceled. And I developed an understanding how uh, the preservative drive, as I would call it, is important and powerful primary force in our life uh, to preserve not only oneself but also one's objects and that this is the antagonist to sexuality. So my uh, conclusion was that sexuality and the preservation of self and object, these are the two uh, primal drives. That's why my recent book is also called Driven to Survive, because I wanted to emphasize and elaborate on this side of drive theory, because it hasn't uh, so much been spoken about. And in this uh, context, I was, of course, asked to develop an understanding of aggression. And I think my conclusion is aggression is an enhancement of both of these primal drives that we Whenever our survival is at stake or the survival of our objects or our love objects are at stake or our narcissism in terms of self-love, we become aggressive. We enhance uh, their power. We assert ourselves because we want to be successful and uh, satisfy these two primal drives. Does that make sense in a nutshell?
0: Well, what, what I'm most impressed with is you've managed to make sense of Freud's drive theory for yourself. You have, it seems to me, a very clear picture of how how it can all work out in a way that's very helpful clinically too. So I'm going to read that book because I, I, it's still I get lost uh, in in the way his theories change through the years and different names of the drives and.
1: Yeah, it's actually um, an adventure to go through this. Uh, I always found it fascinating. So uh, uh, it took me many years. Uh, I worked probably altogether twenty years before I understood uh, and uh, resolved it in my view uh, altogether. But uh, I don't think it is a boring thing, and uh, I hope you will uh, find that too.
0: Oh, okay. good. Well, in our last few minutes, um, have you read any other good psychoanalytic <laughs> either novels or scientific papers or books recently?
1: That's uh, a great question. Uh, what I would love to to recommend to, uh, to you and to your listeners here, or to our listeners, is uh, the books of Marine Dier. Marine Dier is a French Senegal writer who some years ago won the Prix Prix Concours uh, for her book Three Strong Women Uh, it was translated into many languages and it's available in English and what I find so fascinating with her uh, with all her books, I have read them all I'm already waiting for the next one that will be published what I find so fascinating is that she kind of slips into the mind of a slightly psychotic person and shows how the view of the world and reality and the objects slightly uh, gets distorted. And we experience this as readers as we go along in what happens and become insecure of, well, is this real or is it not real? And it is a fascinating way of uh, uh, showing us what the mind of a person can do. So this is, I think, uh, uh, the writer with the highest sense of of, uh, human psychology, and she does this with also a very uh, unique and original style, Uh, so, uh, I, I think that would be the one author that I would uh, very much recommend to to psychoanalytic colleagues. In fact, I did recommend it, uh, you know, for the uh, committee, uh, culture committee of the IPA. I founded uh, a number of uh, international psychoanalytic discussion groups on cultural issues, uh, be it film or art or books or the the like. And for those uh, uh, groups uh, who wanted to discuss uh, literature, analysts discussing literature with international colleagues via Zoom or via email, I recommended as a kickoff this novel Three Strong Women, uh, because I thought it is uh, so suitable for psychoanalysts uh, who love literature that they would find both something about her style and certainly a lot uh, about the psychology of the protagonists in it.
0: Yeah, it actually sounds really relevant Um, in this period of American history, culture, when We're so polarized as a nation. There's different realities people are seeing, and they're so invested in them, fanatically so. And it's such a sort of a mystery to try to understand how to account for that, um, the way people are seeing different worlds. Um, And so, Maureen, how did you, what's her last name again?
1: I I don't know if I uh, pronounce it correctly. It is spelled N D I A. -A 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 Y E and okay. the first two letters N D are both uh, capital letters and the rest is uh, E A. So, Marie and D A, you probably for easiest find it with the title Three Strong Women. I'll uh-huh. get the author uh, for Marie.
0: Well, I think we're out of time, but uh, thank you so much for talking to us, for writing the book, for teaching us um, about. Oedipal Theory.
1: And thank you, Philip, for having me and for your observations. It was a great pleasure for me to talk a bit about it, and I thank you for it.
0: You're very welcome. You've been listening to an interview with Cordelia (laughs) Schmidt-Hellerau. Okay, that's one of my very special patients calling me. I'm not surprised at all. Okay, <laughs> she's very insistent. Um, let's see. You've been listening to an interview with Cordelia Schmidt Um, She's uh, about her book "Memories Eyes," a New York Edipal novel, um, here at the New Books in Psychoanalysis uh, Network. Um, Please contact me at Philip J Lance, Philip has one L at gmail.com to let me know your thoughts and questions about the show. Thank you for listening.